0: Hi friends, welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Neil Christie. Neil is a United Methodist elder currently serving in the Baltimore Washington Annual Conference. After many years at the General Board of Church and Society, Neil continues to work in many areas throughout the UMC connection, including co-convening the Love Your Neighbor Coalition, leading an intern program for college students, and participating on the Christmas Covenant team. He currently works with congregations in the Northeastern jurisdiction on conflict transformation and equipping clergy and laity with tools for reconciliation. In this episode, you'll clearly hear Neil's passion for the church and for its work of justice throughout the world. We barely scratch the surface of his early years as a child of immigrant parents from India and Pakistan, and we quickly moved to his formative years and call to ministry. As we talk through Neil's story and his reflections on all that has happened in our denomination, you can hear his vision for the church's role in transforming the world. Since he has experienced so many parts of our connection, he's able to speak to the worldwide nature of the UMC while also understanding our nuances and diversity. We cover a lot of ground in this interview and yet there's so much that we didn't get to. You're gonna need that notebook and yeah, you should probably grab that choice beverage. So let's listen to this really good interview with Neil Christie. Neil Christie, how are you doing today, my friend? I am well, Derek. How are you doing? I'm good, and I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I just uh, feel like you are um, a wealth of information and experience and exposure. Um, especially around some of the critical issues that we are facing as a denomination. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about those things. But um, I, I want to always start sort of at the beginning. I um, would love to just hear how God's provenient grace brought you into mm. the United Methodist Church and yeah. um, how you became a United Methodist Christian.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I dropped my daughter off in Brook on Malcolm X Boulevard in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And uh, I took my spouse, Lois, and my daughter past the church, Bethelship, now United Methodist Church. But historically, it was called Bethelship Norwegian Methodist Church. Now, why do I say mm. this? So my family immigrated from India and Pakistan in the early 1960s. And the first place that my parents lived was a brownstone in what was predominantly a Norwegian neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, which had shifted. So we started having Indians, South Asians, as well as Puerto Ricans coming into the neighborhood and African-Americans, so larger Black population too. So this was a shifting community. So my memories are of climbing up the steps of that urban church in Brooklyn, New York, and hearing you know, the liturgy in Norwegian and in English, oh, and wow. then playing with... Uh, a kid, you know, who's Indian, who's black, who's Puerto Rican. And for me, that was sort of my first, that was my introduction to the (laughs) the Methodist church, was as an immigrant. And my parents are, my whole family have immigrated, or immigrants. And so we are now all over different parts of the world, but that's where I began. And I was baptized there, and they welcomed my parents. And so I like to say, the hospitality that was shown to us as immigrants, that i've never forgotten that because it was not manufactured or artificial or required it was just part of the fabric of that congregation and i remember going to speak at a church in uh oslo uh and at an af- sort of an after the worship service was a meal for on house folk and the pastor my friend hilda marie now teaches in the seminary there she said neil talk to them tell them your story and i did and I said, "Thank you for welcoming welcoming us." And they came up to me and they said, "We want to thank you because your church, our church, was dying, and we didn't have the Methodist Church. It was it became irrelevant. It wasn't involved in the community. Your church came back and evangelized Scandinavia, and so engaged the gospel with the people. So thank you because it was you, you, you all gave back to us, and I've never forgotten that because the." they opened the doors for us immigrants themselves and then i was going to thank them and they said no your church came back and helped us open the doors for our own people and our people now are diverse people that come from all over the world from africa across asia and they're coming into the into the church so um you know i think i've always been part of the united methodist church it was the one of the and i think i've heard this from so many different people who have had similar experiences for me it was a safe place right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was a place where on sundays we would be uh, my parents worked my dad worked two three jobs to make it you know my mom took care of the family um and it was the one place we were together actually you know we didn't always have time to eat together because of my dad's work so church was it and so that was the day and um walking the halls of some churches, I could just feel God was there and I was safe. And it wasn't always like that in school. Um, In the neighborhoods where we grew up in rural, after being in Brooklyn, New York, in rural areas where we moved, where we were the only brown kids. Hmm. So it was not, you know, the hellish experience that we hear from from people that I can empathize because some of those were my experiences growing up in the um mid 1960s to the early 70s mid 70s you know where it's just not we went we didn't belong so that was Mm -hmm. it and so trying to find that space in church was so important and um it was different there it wasn't perfect Mm -hmm. it was never perfect but it was different for us so
0: so neil i'm curious what inspired your parents to land in that congregation? Had they been connected to Methodism prior to that?
1: Yep. So my dad and mom both, um, my family are converts from uh, Hinduism and Jainism. And so we can track when the conversions happened. One of my great grandfathers, Lalubai, which means red, he was a, it was a, uh, (laughs) <laughs> he was a chef for missionaries and he was not a high caste hindu he was a lower mm-hmm. caste hindu mm-hmm. and he converted and so the whole family just sort of slowly converted with him um mm-hmm. my other side of the family were Jains in in Gujarat state in the western part of india they also converted and the challenge i think when i've gone back to india as a child and then now as adult it's like to be a christian in India, when you're such a small minority with you know hundreds of millions of people, it's a big deal. like to be a Christian means your lifestyle is very different, and so you don't celebrate the festivals you don't um you just don't you don't do the rituals uh so it's a very different worldview and expectation. so you stand out and it means something so for my parents, when they came to the u s and immigrated it would make sense the very first thing you do is look for a United Methodist Church and through connections in the Methodist Church in India it you know they had some sense of where to go and it was the pastor the pastor of that church remained par- friends with my uh, parents until my father is now 90 and they they stayed friends until they all passed my father's to living the others my mother now has passed on and both of those pastors from 1960 have passed. Pastor and spouse passed on, but their kids. We learned what Thanksgiving was from them, right? We <laughs> American mm. food, American customs. <laughs> it's like you yeah. learn these things when you don't. Who's going to teach you? So you have people from church, especially a pastor, is willing to open the door uh, for us. That was that's what made the difference. And yeah. yeah, and you know, growing up, I was very blessed. Like so many people, youth group, I had teachers from jamaica switzerland uh guyana um there was a very very diverse multiracial congregation i wouldn't say we were actively anti-racist but we were living into what does it mean to be a multiracial community and the that shaped me because it's like i can't go back i can't ever go back and so any ministry settings where i've been in a, with a dominant racial group particularly white communities. You know, to me, that's a full cross-cultural immersion. It's like, how do I translate my own life experience, and then now what I've learned to to do ministry in these contexts, and I've done it um, in very rural areas. You know, where I was the the only one, and uh, there's consequences for that in some communities, right? You, yeah, things, yeah. things happen. Things yeah. happen that I can go into those stories if you're interested. But the, I mean, what it was like pastoring churches in all white. Communities, but it's yeah. So
0: it shaped me. Well, take me <laughs> on that journey to your call to ministry. Sure. So as a teen, as a as a
1: teenager, youth group, of course, I went to a, on a mission trip to Haiti when I was maybe um, 16, 17. And for me, I kind of did have a conversion experience in the sense that the kind of we were building churches and schools in the Lakai uh, area near St. George, a neighborhood community called St. George in the mountains. And I remember going to Grace Methodist Hospital where children with tuberculosis were there and um, receiving care. And I remember their smiles. I still remember. And I remember playing with them on the ground and having them jump on my back and pretend I was a horse and just fully embracing them. And for the first time, I really sensed, well, I sensed God in church and I would have my conversations in the playground with God. I sensed Christ fully alive and present with these children who, who really were experiencing severe poverty and, and how health vulnerability challenges but i saw christ and i saw christ among them and in them and for me it drew me to okay what does it mean what does it mean to serve Um, what does mercy ministry look like what is compassion ministry then i was an intern at church and society uh for a summer as a college student and then as an intern with our offices at um the united nations and uh working on on matters around uh, the death penalty, gambling, uh, human rights research at the UN. Then Global Ministries, I was an intern. I worked in a prison, two prisons, one known as Sing Sing, it's called Asating. It's a maximum security prison with folks who are studying theology. And all of this is when I was in college. I worked in a warehouse to put myself through college. Um, I did on Fridays, I was in prison, and I had my internships. And so I was immersing myself in the church beyond the local church. I I was blessed to have these experiences. Um, But I still didn't feel a call to ministry. I went to Divinity School, I attended Yale Divinity School. In the third year, after having gone on many retreats, Catholic monasteries, uh, believing that I was definitely gonna become a human rights attorney, that's what I was called to do. um, My third year in Divinity School, I was in the kitchen and I felt God say, you need to go to a local church, you need to celebrate the sacraments, offer the sacraments and be with the people. And that's when I per- started to pursue formally ordained ministry. And I would never questioned that. And I was like, my life would have been very, very different because of the commitments I have and, and the kind of education I was receiving. So I thought, am I gonna teach? Am I gonna do study, practice law, study law? It was like, go to the parish, go to a local church. So and i served local churches in the greater new jersey conference i was in school i was in the south bronx i was in harlem i was in hartford running food pantries so the beginning of the aids pandemic uh folks didn't even know what was causing aids and so we were running a food pantry trying to figure that out uh but i went to a local church um very rural setting it was a question of rich people and poor people you know young families with a lot of resources and then farmers who had been Who sold their land too cheap and who were living, you know, which I found out, you know, day to day, basically, month to month. But it was a real, it was a great opportunity to be in ministry. And it's that part of central New Jersey, sort of the northern tip of Appalachia. So it opened my eyes. Um, I was committed to 12 step programs. So we had three 12 step programs in that church, a Christian counseling church uh, center that I began. Vacation Bible school they hadn't had in 40 years. We started it. I love vacation Bible school. So I began, so for me, the local church was my way to, to express my ministry, my ordained ministry. And then there was a position at Church and Society that came open for a seminar designer. And back in 1996. So I was discerning where do I go? I ended up coming to Washington, D.C. I stayed at Church and Society for 24 years in three different positions. Then I've now worked with the conference for two years, doing all sorts of other wonderful things, and now I'm where I'm at. That gives cool. you a sense of where I'm coming from.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, it's so good. We're gonna slow walk back a little bit because I've got some questions. Yeah. And wanna hear a little bit more along the way. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like you had these internships and you're yeah. serving in prisons, and yeah. but none of this is because I feel like I'm gonna be a pastor like yeah like (laughs) what was the motivation what was the motivation um curiosity
1: Hmm. that it was liberation and in prison we would read cone we read bonhoeffer we would list we would talk about life choices and responsibility and oppressive systems and this is before i was in seminary (laughs) i mean so for me i was real again i was really thank you God, because I was given those opportunities and I could, that was what I chose to do. You know, my friends thought it was a little weird, but I had normal, you know, normal non-church friends, but it's like my mentor, he was a chaplain and he was like, come with me on Fridays, man. You're going to love it. And it's like, yep. And I learned. And they, these men held me accountable. It was a program called um, Exodus. And so then it, it, it aligned itself with New York Theological Seminary. They were offering masters in theology to folks that are serving in prison. So Greenhaven Prison and in Austin, Inc. And then I invited, when I was in college in New York, I invited my professors to even come with me and to learn from these men. So for me, that was, that was another conversion experience. It's like, what is life like in incarceration? And I, so that was it. it. But I wasn't called to ordain ministry. I was like, no. Why would I want that? Why why would you want me to do that? <laughs> I mean, for let's be straight. It's like this is there are so many different options. Yeah. You know, yeah. And even in divinity school, my friends were getting ready to teach, work with nonprofits. I didn't know. I just was going, studying what I wanted to study and feeling what do you want me to do? And and I was open.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm so on this journey neil um particularly as you are uh you, you're in that kitchen you hear your call to ministry mm-hmm. um with some clarity there why united methodism
1: so yeah it's a great question so in a sense i'm this is where i'm also blessed in that i did not go to a united methodist school right yeah. i went to a school yeah. with a lot of episcopalians mm-hmm. a lot of catholics um we had folk ucc folk so there were all these options and even when i was in seminary i didn't i worked in churches like from running a food pantry or working in the south bronx doing working with organizers there during the summer and part of my fall but i didn't work in pa- pastoral roles I, I avoided it as much as i could i still remember one pastor and would say i'll take you on pastoral business with me and was like uh-uh that was it it's like, I was, I didn't feel like, <laughs> what can I do? What do you do in a pastoral? Visit? Now I love that. It's like one-on-ones with folk. I, mm-hmm. I live for that. I live for mm-hmm. it. But back then I was like, no, I don't feel adequate. I, I didn't feel it was my gift, but um what really convinced me to, to be in the United Methodist church were two things. Number one, the, the, I attended a Methodist churches I didn't feel welcome in, so I'm not going to lie. I'll be straight with it. I was just not, was not welcome. And I was becoming more and more politically active on campus. Yeah. So the dean at the time who was attending a Methodist church, it was not comfortable. Let's just say it wasn't comfortable. So it was like, which church do I go to? So my friend Scott, who teaches at Louisville Presbyterian uh, Theological Seminary in Kentucky, uh, he's the chair of the black studies program there he said neil we and he grew up united methodist and so it was like he said we've got to connect with the united methodist church This is our second year at school so we started going to the black church at yale so it was the black church for me as someone who's indian that i felt most welcome absolutely the most mm. welcome mm. by these young students where i felt like they weren't looking at me they weren't judging me or expecting anything of me and we the spirituality of staying being in that round that uh, community that worshiped in the round and students took turns preaching um grounded me so Mm it was it was then the black church that i felt welcome back into the church in a way and but it wasn't united Methodist, but there were a lot of united methodists there second piece is i read the social principles again so even though i'm reading theology you know and i'm doing graduate work i'm taking classes at law i'm taking Doing all this academic stuff, I went back to the social principles and I realized by my third year, I am definitely United Methodist. Hmm. The social principles convinced me. So it wasn't just picking them up once. I had I this was after studying theology. Almost three years, I went back to them and said, This is what I believe. So why am I not uh, choose it? Why don't I stay open to staying in the United Methodist Church? And um in my history i've had methodist missionaries and methodist missionaries that went to pakistan afghanistan back at the turn of the century in the early 1900s medical mission so the, the methodist church made that difference to my my ancestors okay at sit, but for me it was like well what do i choose what do i choose um i was attracted to catholic spirituality uh is that an option for me um the liturgy is important for me i'm a i'm traditional in that sense. I'm Orthodox. But politically, I'm very progressive. So where do I fit? And the United Methodist Church was the one place that I found could be my home, that could hold it all together. So, wow, yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. Yeah? Um, yeah. And it resonates. Um, there are, I think, many of us who we're United Methodist in some respects because we didn't fit in other <laughs> denominations uh-huh. because of the varied theological and social commitments that we're holding. Yeah, um, but I also think that I, it's not the first time I've heard someone say I read the social principles and all of a sudden mm-hmm. I knew I knew where my home was. Yep. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I I appreciate you. Um, Unpacking that a little bit. Neil, as you think about your call to ministry, were there individuals who mentored you and inspired mm-hmm. you um, on your journey?
1: Yep. It's always the Sunday school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, yep. there's always the Sunday school teachers, some of whom's names I don't I need to admit I don't remember. Some I do. Uh, Mr. Ruger was from Switzerland originally, Mary, who was from Jamaica, uh, she was a teacher by vocation. But we, you know, my Sunday school teachers, uh, my colleague, Jack, who is outspoken in our conference, who called, you know, truth, he spoke truth to power and took the consequences, whatever they may be, really encouraged me, uh, held me accountable at times. Um, But opened doors for me, had me sitting at, ta- at tables where it's like I didn't know what was happening. But said, "Come to this church and society meeting." And I'm 19 years old, and I'm listening to them have these conversations. Like I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not there yet. It's a very different reality. But there are people who are willing to do that for me, and I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for folks, and even in uh, my, you know, so it's local church pet mentors, but also um colleagues in the general church so my mm-hmm. supervisor friend and mentor one of them i will name is jim winkler who was general secretary of church and society for uh more than 12 years and began as a friend who 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 showed me how do you work in annual conferences what do you do to um you know what do you, how do you pursue justice by connecting with people, building relationships with people in the church. But he, was a prof- he is and was a prophetic leader in church and society. And when it came to the war, uh, the U.S. war in Iraq, uh, you know, um, war, the, the inability for our country to stop preparing for war and pull itself out from places where we are at war, he was outspoken and worked ecumenically and in her faith mm. and i have deep respect for him for the that work because it took its toll not everyone in the church is kind when it comes to to justice ministry so but i've had mentors wow. in conferences and local churches that have been mary bounton my first church who was the matriarch of the church who had tea with me every week and held me accountable <laughs> It praised me but also held me accountable and said how are you doing with this and that i love mary you know she was the matriarch and she different theologically from where i was coming from but we cared about each other so yeah yeah and professors i've Mm -hmm. been blessed i had excellent professors uh some names that you know some you don't the name cornell west people know but there are and he was one of my professors but there are people like Sean Copeland, who came right after Cornell, who taught me uh, for almost three years. Uh, brilliant, brilliant theologian, Catholic, nun, African-American, who taught um, both Black theology, feminist theology, sort of the start of womenist theology, but really opened my eyes to to Catholic, again, to to just a larger world view through, uh, different theological, you know, political and theological readings of the classics, and then tell, how do you make this contemporary? So Letty Russell, who was one of my mentors also in in seminary, who um, was tremendous and globally respected um, for her work in creating a household theology, which she called a household theology, the household of freedom. Um, and if it's one of the first uh, of the feminist theologians that Mentored so many people, so these were people I deeply, deeply grateful for.
0: Yeah, gosh, yeah. So Neil, so much of your story centers around the General Board of Church and Society. Mm-hmm. We, we jumped, we yeah, jumped in, in and jumped around. There, and, right? <laughs> Twenty-four years there is that that's what did you say? Yeah, that's a long um, time. So so tell me about those first days for you um, working um, at the general board. So uh, back then,
1: staff was larger. We had more financial resources, I think. Um, But that didn't matter to me back then. What I cared about is creating ministry. And so uh, for six years, I was a seminar designer, which meant that I would create experiential educational opportunities for college students, high school students for adults back then, United you know, Methodist women's groups, intergenerational groups on poverty, immigration, um, all the issues we're dealing with today. I mean, very few of them have changed. It's, I think back to when I was an intern at church society, the, you know, civil war was happening in Latin America. So Nicaragua and El Salvador were on the map. But that back in the, when I was started at church and society, Palestine, but when I was in college, South Africa, apartheid was—you know—how do you dismantle apartheid? Was on the map. Well, back in the early mid 1990s, after having pastored in a church, been a hospital chaplain, done some of the things I've explained, here I am working with kids and young people and adults from Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Maine and Missouri, and then expanding that to work with. that came from the philippines and then traveling to teach the social principles or to lead workshops on social justice issues around the the globe for me it was it was creative liberating um it you're 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 opening people's eyes for the first time to some of the issues yeah so you're building conscientization you're building the Mm -hmm. ability to how to see things shift the way we see things together Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to do it in a way that's not um doesn't shut down folks don't shut down but they open up Mm -hmm. yeah so for me social justice education but to do it with a sensitivity to where spirit is um was really important Mm -hmm. so it wasn't just about promoting social justice it was about where god is incarnationally where's jesus in this where do we really see jesus in this what else is true um that was all important for me and you know, I did, and I loved it. I loved it. And then I became the supervisor for the program and we expanded it. But back then, I think our country was definitely several things. Number one, our country was not as divided as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, Christian nationalism is not what we, we hear today either. That was not a challenge in our churches, I don't think, to the level it is today. And I think that is a challenge now. Um, matters around racial justice were on the table uh but we had not yet we we had the vocabulary but we didn't always have the history we had history from sort of movements social justice movements but we didn't look at housing right we didn't look at um education we didn't look at redlining right we didn't look at wealth building so we didn't look at how racial how racism systemic racism through public policy, has maintained itself and grown to get us to the place where we are, where we have such deep divisions and between people of color and white majority communities, rich and poor. And so the issues are similar to what we have today, but I feel like we we were getting, we were going in deep analysis, but we were not, we didn't have all the resources. We're still, things. people were still doing the work, the research. I think that Back then, you know, again, I was very fortunate. I, I still remember one group I worked with were kids from Northern Ireland. Um, so they're Catholic and Protestant who typically would have never worked together. They were brought here for the summer for immersions together. And we were able to meet with Hillary Clinton at the White House because she heard about the poems that my kids were working on. And she had heard that we were doing this seminar, said, well, you're Eni Methodist. you're doing this great work, come and meet with me so we had the, the doors were open for those kinds of experiences so you could have these aha moments but you'd also do the grassroots work needed to do the uh, social justice education and that that's what it was like for me back then it was i knew how to take people in my i live in washington dc so going to the latin american youth center uh, or going to an urban farm in anacostia um and taking white kids or multiracial group of kids to a predominantly black community and predominantly Latino community was something that I, you know, I riffed off. I love that. It's like, it's like music. You play, you move with it, you create something and you end with something beautiful that where some movement has happened inside. Yeah. And, and so I think the challenge for me with that kind of ministry though, is okay, how do you sustain it? And that kind of led me to mm-hmm. other forms of ministry, church, and society, which is working with our organizers or working a little more on public policy education, or let's spend time talking about the social principles in greater depth. And um, in the early years, when I was there, I was working with the revision of the social creed, the anniversary of the social creed. We spent four years traveling the world, working with folks, for the first time to hear their voices, and what does the social creed sound like to you as it reflect your reality? So I moved from more this this level experiential education to, okay, let me see if we can create community, but how is this going to have a different kind of an impact? Almost like a policy impact within the church, theologically, but then also in some public policy issues. So I shifted somewhat. So revision of the social creed for four years and then after hiatus, revision of the social principles for eight years. And that took me uh, into conversations on every, every aspect of life that's reflected in the social principle. So all along the way, trying to do my part to mentor people who will come after me and yeah, see what continue to grow. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Let's take a quick break. So Neil, this podcast, um, I always ask folks at this point in in, in the conversation um, about how they felt about General Conference 2019. And I ask because I believe that it, it's a important moment in the life of our denomination. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the history books will, will will lift up many important moments, but that definitely the passage of the traditional plan mm-hmm. will be seen as a, a an important moment for our denomination. So I'm just curious to the degree that you want to share, what was your personal response to the passage of the traditional plan at the special session in 2019? Um, for me,
1: it was a wake up call to the church in several ways and then i'll share my own personal experience so it's a wake-up call in the sense that um i feel like we saw at least some of us saw how narratives could be manipulated by political actors mm. and theological actors how they could manipulate through fear um enough constituents to tip the majority because i it it was not the it was not a strong majority that voted for the traditional plan right it was this was they tipped it and they did it out of fear uh they also convinced those who are unfamiliar with the nuance and diversity of the united methodist church that there is some there's a mythological uh mono voice one voice in the united methodist church which does has never existed but they convince the external world that nope the united methodist church believes this is has a very restrictive understanding when it comes to ordination uh human sexuality uh same gender uh committed and loving relationships and the role you know role of ordained ministry what was what's what's possible What's not possible so they convince the outside world so when I'm walking through the park and I have persons who are Muslim and Jewish say to me, I am so sorry what happened to your church in 2019. And that's what happened. People who have no knowledge of the New Methodist Church would come up to me lamenting um, the, the, the decision. And I'd ask them, how much do you really know about the New Methodist Church? And they said, very limited. But based on what the media, how the media is portraying this, um, my heart goes out to you because I know this doesn't reflect your values. So I feel like the the political, there was a win politically um, there that was a wake up call, Um, number one. Number two, the traditional plan suggests that there's one view of how to be church, which is not accurate. (laughs) We've always been diverse in our theology, in our way we define and work our relationships, do the work in our relationships. It's not always reflected in the positions of the church. And so this codified the most restrictive, most punitive, legalistic um form of church that does not reflect where I think the majority of United Methodists are, whether you're in the United States or Africa or the philippines or europe so i don't think it reflected who reflects who we are and we have an opportunity to to change it to actually be more truthful now so now personally what impact did it have um it was i felt embarrassed frankly Mm. because this is not the the way that i relate to my friends my family and those i'm in ministry with as a pastor and as a, uh, in pastoral roles with people, you know. I may not mm-hmm. be pastoring a church right now, but I'm always a pastor. So when people talk to me, this doesn't reflect who I am.
0: Yeah. Wow. It doesn't
1: reflect who I am. So, And it doesn't reflect who my children are. So, mm. <laughs> this, so- this is not a church that my children see themselves in. If we maintain mm-hmm. the, tr- the traditional plan
0: and that's the truth for a whole generation. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So,
0: and were you serving at the agency at the time? I was, I yeah. was, and, and I,
1: at that point, I, I certainly, we had finished the revision of the social principles, the eight year process. So I had built even more relationships across sub-Saharan Africa, the Philippines, Europe, the jur- jurisdictions across the United States, and I, I had had conversations with people, very intimate, direct uh, conversations, hard conversations on the hard issues, in- including human sexuality. So after having go- gone through that whole process, then to face the 2019, where we're sort of we we've now completed almost all of the revised social principles. We we held off on two pieces is one on human sexuality and one on marriage till after 2019. But all that work had been done, Derek. So being part of all those conversations, taking those notes, listening, processing, um, agreeing, disagreeing, finding common points, values, so that we have the document, and then going to 2019 and seeing how the manipulation, uh, the the fear, that was not was reflected in that beautiful work that we did for those 8 years together so
0: hmm.
1: deflated right fearful for my siblings what does this say not only to our siblings in the church but outside the church when they're not they don't identify as christian but a christian church behaves this way That's unacceptable to me. Yeah. It's harmful to those who are non-Christian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that—that's—that's that's how I, how I experienced 2019. Political mm-hmm. manipulation, disappointment, and fear for my sisters and brother, my siblings, who now who see the church behave in such a way.
0: One of the reasons that I do think that the passage of the traditional plan is an important moment. It's because of the ways that it seemed to, depending on who you're talking to, um, wake up some parts of our denomination, um, galvanize some parts of our denomination, some individuals, some groups. um, And we saw a very quick response to the traditional plan as we headed out of the special session and into annual conference season. And particularly in parts of the Southeast and the South Central jurisdictions, we saw, um, you know, I, I you know, in my conference here in the Florida Conference, we saw some very, very intentional actions around our de- uh, the election of delegates for the next uh, quadrennium as a, a response to the passage of the traditional plan, as well as some resolutions um, from conferences saying essentially that they would not yeah. Um be abiding by it. And I'm I'm just wondering from your place in a, you know at church society, but a, as an organizer, I'm curious what that felt like to you. Um just sort of looking across the landscape of our US connection as you as we were watching sort of these things happen. Did you did you have any feelings about that? Or was yeah. it more like is that exactly what should have happened or was it surprising? How did you wish this happened earlier? <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah. I I think folks that had stood on the sidelines uh, decided to come to the middle, right? And mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I'm I'm drawing an analogy here. Is during the Black Lives Matter um, marches occurring, taking place, mm-hmm. and I was in Washington D.C. I was in different parts of DC, but primarily near the White House as those marches were happening. My children, my daughter, my son, uh, mm-hmm. my daughter in college, my son in high school were participating. And they saw students that would not have participated, but because it was Black Lives Matter and because what it stood for, they joined. These were folks that otherwise would have been on the sidelines. But this is a matter of life and death. This is about, this is not an option, friends we have to take a stand and i saw vote united methodists good loving compassionate mercy driven um feed the hungry clothe the naked united methodists but who would not really take a stand for advocacy necessarily um moving from the sideline to the center and they became public with their voice alongside folks that have been in this struggle for years uh, for full inclusion and to me that's that's hopeful it's really hopeful Mm -hmm. Um, it's a challenge because we have different cultural expectations and styles of working together but it feels hopeful and i've seen more and more people who would otherwise stand on the side coming to the middle To the center where we can do some good work together and pass the resolutions that need to be passed. So, we now have in the United States, across the globe, in my opinion, I think that we have a different perspective than we did going into 2019. Uh, Even talking to delegates who had personal opinions and yet who may have maintained the status quo, they certainly didn't want to become even more. accusatory and um litigious, right? Mm -hmm. They would have they would have been they would have been like, yeah, let's take some moderate steps, but they certainly didn't want to. But they saw what happened. And so now those same people are willing to say no, wait a Mm -hmm. second. We have to come up with an alternative so that we can agree to disagree and we do not dehumanize and demonize um uh one group of people because of their their identity. And so I think that that I've seen sort of a sea change, kind of, from 2019, with more people getting involved. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the resolutions passed at the annual conference level that we saw. Um, we wouldn't see the support I think for regionalization, the Christmas Covenant um, that we've seen, which gives uh, the the freedom for um, the church to organize itself in a way that that we can move beyond um, the, this sort of. Th- these limited litigious uh, persecutorial positions that we have the freedom to um to respect our differences and to allow ministry to occur you know life-giving ministry to occur so i don't yeah. know i don't know if that answers the question
0: yeah no it totally does totally does so i think from there yeah, you know, usually I, you know, start asking folks about, you know, the things that happened right after the annual conference season protocol and then COVID, delays of general conference and that kind of yep. thing. But but I um I, I have to go in a different direction with you, Neil, because you have had some direct interactions with some specific pieces that are coming to our next general conference, um, and one of those is your relationship with the Christmas Covenant team, mm-hmm. and and the broader conversation around regionalization. And um, I'd love to hear how you got involved with the Christmas Covenant team, um, and then let's just take it from there. So, yeah, how did you how did you connect to that work?
1: Yeah, so it was by invitation, really. I, I read the original the the legislation um i really paid attention to the values first uh because compared to the other you know possibilities the other petitions you know legislation that would become petitions they didn't begin with values Hmm. they kind of didn't begin with what we stand for there was not an affirmation of our theological task our doctrinal history um that we to that we are called to engage that that's like that's our dna it's like to think theologically and critically and constructively first um, in in partnership with people people's lived experience. It's like, that's where it starts. And the, it, it was not sort of a quick fix piece of legislation. So that's what attracted me in the language I saw. And then came the proposals and the constitutional changes. And then it was through personal invitations. So by seeing the author, original authors of the Christmas Covenant who I had built relationships with over the years, and trust with, I knew that it was not one region that was putting it forth. That the central conferences were coming together. These were leaders and emerging leaders who um, wanted a way out of this impasse. And uh, whether it's Norway or Zimbabwe, uh, Liberia, you know, Congo, I, I, Philippines, I knew these these folks. My sisters and brothers, I knew them and um so i trusted them and then i was invited in to be part of the u.s team and i think it's humbling in the sense that the the christmas covenant really reflected the the vision of the central conferences and it's a gift to the united methodist church from our central conferences and so i'm not used to being in the position of receiving a gift i like to be the Mm. gift giver yeah. yeah. Okay. I love giving gifts. I love to cook meals for people. I love to make gifts. I, I love to give gifts if I can to mm-hmm. show you hospitality. So to have central conference leaders say, this is our gift to the United Methodist Church. You know, you may have some people receive it and say, well, what kind of, what can you offer the United Methodist Church? You see what good can come if it's not coming from those who have the power and the privilege and the financial re- the resources at the center? Well, this wasn't coming from the center. This was coming from the margins. And um, for me, that's exciting. <laughs> that's like, okay, Neil, you got to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. So you, I have trust in the leaders. It's coming from the margins. It's grounded in our United Methodist identity. And we were talking about that at the, the first episode is how important, I think, for both of us that identity is. And it's it's so complex and nuanced. It's not, and it's, it draws us in. It's It's not... You're either in or out no it draws us in and, and so that's what attracted to me me to say i i more and more believe that this is the very best way for the united methodist church to move forward um to hold the church in unity maintain our and, and to expand our diversity to decentralize and yet maintain the common pieces that that hold us together as united methodists um whether it's the agencies or, uh, you know, all the institutions that we so rely on um, and our social principles, certainly. I think that had there been discussion of the social principles as a contextual document, I would have been more wary. Uh, But from the very beginning, the Christmas Covenant affirmed the social principles as a document for the whole church. And I thought that's risk-taking. Because it's a cha- prophetic challenge to the whole church to go beyond its own region Ooh. and yet to be regional in its expression of social justice, but to go beyond itself and to stay connected. That's why, that's why I see the social principles. They're not like, uh, this is where I think we've we've done significant improvement from the current social principles. They're much more contextual now. They respect, speak to the whole church and the context. And so at the same time, and that's what the Christmas covenant is trying to do. Mm. Give the freedom, and then at the same time, maintain certain structures necessary for us to to stay United Methodist Church.
0: So I'm curious, as you're thinking about your work with the Christmas Covenant team and the broader conversation of regionalization that you've heard, what do you think might be the threats? Or what are the things that we've got to really think about um, critically and, and really talk about deeply as a church if we really really want to see regionalization pass, yes, general conference, but really be something that the church would embrace?
1: Um, I think that conferences and local churches need to see what difference it'll make for them. That's the embracing piece because we can pass a general conference, but if a conference doesn't sort of explore, well, what difference does it make for us? where my local church that i attend says well now what's the difference we've still we've been doing what we're doing uh we're following our conscience um and that can go for churches along the theological perspective in terms of what they are willing to do or not do um yeah i think the the challenge is the is asking that question to conferences and local churches what difference will regionalization make and for me i look at the u.s as a region and the opportunity to have conversations that we couldn't otherwise have um more intentionally that otherwise we would wait till general conference to have you know i was talking with someone this week where i said it's unfortunate because because of the 2019 general conference um we don't have a major initiative in the church right we imagine no malaria was this visionary Mm. vision for the global church that we could all buy into at some level we could disagree theologically in some ways uh we uh, we don't have to be a huge church we can be a modest church small member church large member church we all participate and I was fortunate in, uh, that I worked on the Maginot Miller campaign with colleagues that were doing the policy work. So advocating to Congress to also step up its uh, you know, its funding around healthcare. So we did that as part of our contribution as church and society, and I'm proud of that. Mm. Um, and I remember taking a group of 50 uh, African uh, United Methodists who had immigrated to the United States, stayed in the U.S., who are now serving churches as, as clergy to do advocacy on Capitol Hill and to talk about ad, uh, imaginal malaria. So that was powerful. They never expected Africans to talk about imaginal malaria from the global, from the worldwide United you know, Methodist church. That can, those are things I think we can do. We still can do that. Um, but where is it? Where is the initiative? Mm-hmm. Our, our, mm-hmm. our energy, our time, our resources, our best, wi- our wisdom, it's been invested in now where do we go from the disaffiliations to what the future structure of the United Methodist Church will look like. Wow. And that's really unfortunate. We've sort of put off a prophetic vision for the church. Where's the initiative? Wow. What is it other people can now look back and say between 2019 and 2023, Ooh. what did the United Methodist Church focus Ugh. on? Friends. Oh, Neil! Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, but it's the truth. What are my siblings, who are Catholic, mm. Jewish, Muslim, Presbyterian, UCC, Episcopalian, say? Your church, Neil, 2019-23. What did you do in the world? You've done amazing, amazing life-giving ministries at the local level. Perhaps you have. You've changed lives. You've you've worked, changed communities. But as a church with the resources you've got, what did you do? There's something biblical in that, Oof. right? The steward asking, you know, the, the, the servant, the, the person who's been hired, what did you do with the resources I gave you? So we're going to have to, I think we need to be held accountable for that as a church. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, what have we done? And so that's why the Christmas covenant is saying, this is not a way out. It's a way of seeing who we are differently. We begin with our common values. We affirm our theological task, our doctrinal heritage, our social principles. Um, what if we look at all of our and this is where I'm kind, why don't let's look at all the ministries through the lens of our contextual theological task? Look at it through the lens of our social principles. Let's look at it through the lens of our doctrinal heritage like this is this is who we are, and what would it look like for the region u s as a region to have meaningful conversation and commitments around gun violence prevention um climate justice that's impacting our us at the, at the at every level in the united states um voter suppression in the united states you name the issue lack of access so curtailed lack uh, access for women to full range of health care um that they need you know we need to have those conversations they may not be the same kind of conversations my siblings in nigeria or Liberia, or Congo, or or Zimbabwe want to have right now. They've got their own. And so we've got to have them, and we don't have a space for that as a region. So I would love to see us do that so that when we come together at General Conference, we're coming, having had those conversations and commitments, and we're coming to the common table. The majority of, as you know, and people have said this to you, um, so much of what happens at General Conference has nothing, it has to do with the United States, it's US centric.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: decisions are made. Pensions are voted on by delegates from around the world, but their US pensions are voting on, right? Um, let's, let's sift out what is not truly connectional and worldwide uh, and let the regions uh, do the business they need to do, give them the freedom to do it. Let ministry happen and flourish contextually, recognizing we will not agree uh, uh, completely on every issue, uh, and nor do we need to. We can still be in relationship with each other. So, can we celebrate one another's ministry? So, yeah. Ooh.
0: Yeah. Just, I'm just reflecting on... <laughs> The range of emotions you just put me through. Mm. <laughs> um, no, it's good. It's fine. Good. It's totally fine. So you've already done a little bit of this, but connect me now to the revised social principles, sure. which is, you know, the work that started before 2019, obviously, yep. but um, tell me what's, I mean, the whole thing's important. Yeah. But top tell line. me what, what are the top line important pieces that, um, people listening to this podcast, yep. really want to think about as we, you know, begin to look forward to General Conference.
1: Absolutely, the first four years were spent listening. The best spiritual discipline is listening. It's practicing curiosity. It's practicing Agreed. empathy, validation where we disagree, still validating pre- people's perspectives, looking at. Where the narratives, scripture, tradition are—you know—what's the very best of our critical understanding of the world around us, or reason, and our own personal and lived and collective experience? How does that inform what we believe? How we're going to how we're going to practice our and behave together? Right. So, four years—that was what we did, uh, and we did that by bringing diverse groups together. Um, and then what we heard was, yes, the social principles are a valuable resource for ministry and mission yes they need to be theologically grounded and scripturally grounded and in places they there's a need to address this uh and and thirdly um yes they ought to be more worldwide because right now they uh they seem to reflect one uh one or one cultural understanding so how can they be much more worldwide in application so after the four years of listening the four years of uh writing and then drafting, and then more drafting. So, if I give you some statistics, um we're talking about you know over four thousand individual comments that came in on the a final draft. a final uh, a, a second a first draft that was translated into multiple languages and made public so that anyone could access it. Um, public conversations held in church parlors and basements and theological schools and colleges, and global young people's convocation. And caucus meetings, and where united women in faith before that, united women and United Methodist women, met. So final draft was created, new structure, um, I think which is really exciting, revised language uh, that now is uh, categorized into the community of all creation, the social community, the economic community, and the political community, and several new social principles that I would lift up to you on sustainability. The Agency of Indigenous Peoples, environmental racism, food justice, traditional wisdom and affirming science. So really, again, voices that otherwise would have been marginalized are now been brought to the center. Um, Yeah. yeah. New language on child marriage, on Mm. polygamy, on colonialism and neocolonialism on. uh, Yeah. And so on even on on. War and military service—new new language that shifted. Um, new structure of the social principles, beginning with a quote from John Wesley, specific scripture to ground the principles, naming the problems, and then looking at our responses. So, sort of a consistency and the structure itself—the metastructure—and then mm-hmm. really the understanding that this is a contextual document ultimately, and that it'll be—it should—it ought to be accessible to uh, lay people, clergy, um, someone who's not United Methodist. One of the, the disciplines practices we had early on was to show the document to people who are not part of the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. and to say, does this make sense to you? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's missing here? What would you include? And taking the revised social principles then and looking at the current social principles and then previous iterations, because remember the social principles was written in 1968, There's been no whole cloth revision since 1968. Mm, And in 68, mm -hmm. there was a lot happening. General Conference convened two weeks after Dr. King was assassinated. So it was this urgency at that General Conference, especially on the social principles, to pass something that would really speak to the prophetic now, um, really in the language of of Bishop James Thomas, who chaired the first social principles uh, writing committee. The other piece is that this is really worldwide. So, the social principles have changed every four years, but there was there has not been that intentionality to really do a revision from from across bound borders and boundaries um this was this was the priority from the very beginning that this would not be one group of scholars writing it or would not be based in the United states um so I think even in that, in terms of the locations and then the public conversations. And then the feedback, I don't think a document in the Amethyst Church has gone through this kind of uh, a process. Uh, this is the first time I think this kind of a, a document has been produced this way. Hmm. So, it's yeah. helpful. It's so yeah. helpful.
0: Yeah. And a lot. It's helpful, but it's a lot. It's <laughs> so, a lot. So let me ask this question, Neil. And um, it's an unfair question after all we've talked about, to be honest. but. I'll ask it anyway, um, with all that you've worked on and all all that you've been a part of, what do you think General Conference 2020 that will be held in April and May of 2024 Mm -hmm. needs to be about?
1: So I think priority is... Addressing the harm that was done in 2019, mm. and fixing what we broke, we've been mm. a broken church for some time. But we really broke the church. We mm. tried to break the church, and people have been living in that space since then. Um, they've been living in it for generation. But they, I mean, now it's out in the open. And mm. so, how do we heal that? how do we repair that so that that's number one um but that's connected to other pieces so i can't see that the change in harmful language in the social in the in the book of discipline and in the social principles i don't see that as separate from revisiting our our commitments and so how do we revisit our commitments is through passing the social principles uh new social principles how do we how do we repair um the harm that's been done in the United Methodist church it's through creating uh, a structure that can allow us to flourish and love and respect each other and regionalization is the way to do that uh whether it's the christmas covenant or some version of the christmas covenant that's passed um we've got to learn to love each other again. We've got to learn to see each other's human dignity and see it not as a threat. And that we're not in a place as a church to be in full agreement on anything. So Mm -hmm. that ought not to be the priority. We're not full agreement. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's freedom Mm -hmm. and and unity. That's where this church is. Other churches Mm -hmm. are in different places. We're talking about the United Methodist church. Mm -hmm. So, And I do believe in the worldwide church. I believe Mm -hmm. that we are stronger, we are more effective, we are better with our global voice. And so I don't want to lose any part of the worldwide United Methodist Church. And part of the reason I say that is because I've been so influenced by people from outside my own country, my own borders, Mm -hmm. that their struggles are similar to our struggles. We can't. We don't want to abandon one another, right? So that's my hope.
0: Neil, I just am really grateful for your passion for the church um, and the energy that you've brought to this conversation. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, Thank you, Derek um this has just been a rich rich conversation
1: i i I apologize for anything i did not cover that (laughs) uh, i ought to have covered and those who are listening but there's more to the conversation
0: always so much uh, always
1: more um but for today i'm deeply grateful for the questions you've asked and the chance the opportunity to be able to share some from one perspective it's awesome yeah
0: We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.